Feeling overwhelmed and frustrated by the obstacles you face? Well, you're not alone. The Resiliency Ninja is here to help. Allison Graham is a speaker, author, and business coach. But most importantly, she's on a mission to give you tools to succeed in times when it feels like life sucks. Now, here's your host, Allison Graham. Welcome back to the Resiliency Ninja podcast, where we uncover the stories of stress, obstacles, and adversity behind the success story. I'm your host, Allison Graham, and I'd love to hear from you. Let me know, what do you get out of this episode? I know you're going to get a lot because we have a very inspiring man on the other end of this line right now that I'm going to introduce you to in just a second. But you can always find me at r-ninja.com. And in the show notes, you can find everything you need to know to connect with me on social and with today's guest. Yes. Now, there are very few guests that I'm going to have on this show who I think are going to have this level of insight into being resilient. I would say this man is the essence of a resiliency ninja. He spent 36 years in a profession that is defined by dealing with daily stress, obstacles, and adversity, and often to varying degrees. So I have on the line with me here today, retired NYPD Chief Joe Fox. Joe, welcome to the show. Hey, Allison. Thank you so much. And what a flattering introduction. Well, it's just the beginning because I've got to tell folks about your a little bit more of a formal bio. But we met when I was in New York recently and you just have this way about you. Like you're very kind. No wonder so many people have responded so well and they had such a, you know, emotional goodbye in your retirement party. I saw it online. Oh, uh, uh, wow. Thank it was very, that was very special. Thank you. Yeah. And I know that you just let one of your kiddos went on an adventure today. I saw that online as well. So you've got family, yeah. you've got your NYPD family. And a whole bunch of stories that we're going to cover from adversity to just the daily beat of being a cop. So let me introduce your formal bio, a little bit more formal anyway here, Joe. Joe retired after 36 years with the New York City Police Department, ascending to the ranks of three-star chief, finishing his career as the head of NYPD's Transit Bureau, where he led 2,600 men and women who secure the nation's busiest metropolitan rail system. On his way through the ranks, he also held the office uh, in various departments, uh, Chief of Internal Affairs, the Office of the Deputy Commissioner of Training, and as Brooklyn 71st Precinct Head. And I think that was right at 9-11 when you were in Brooklyn, right? Actually, I was in Brooklyn. I was in and out of Brooklyn my, my whole career. But I was in commanding officer at 71 Precinct Crown Heights in 1995 to 1998, which was, I was placed there three years after the, the conflict in Crown Heights that happened in 92. But then in the year 2000, I became the borough commander of Brooklyn South. So I covered the whole borough. Oh, wow. Okay. See, and I, I just am learning all about New York, right? Like to know boroughs and all that kind yeah. of stuff. But, uh, so, but it doesn't seem like retirement is actually really retirement for you because you went from retiring to being the chief of staff for a full service global security firm called Silver Seal. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. not only that, you inspire others through speaking engagements and executive leadership coaching. And I, I think you have a lot to offer coaches, especially those who are in high level environments and high intensity roles, I would imagine. Well, it's, it's something I'm, that I'm pretty excited about. I've been essentially coaching for you know, most of my 
career as an executive, you know, creating a kind of a mentorship environment is what I've always been most passionate about. I mean, the public safety is a given, but how we build the people uh, who carry out that mission, I, I think that's, that's, that's where my, my passions have always come in. And I've felt very blessed to be able to do it. And was that something that came very natural to you in your leadership style? Or do you feel like the type of leader you were when you began leading as you went, I'm sure you were at some point like a beat cop or or whatever the terminology would be, and then you grow through the rank. Do you feel like your leadership shifted over the years or was that intrinsic in you? You know, that's a great question because it. I became, I was lucky enough to make sergeant relatively early with only three years and three months. So once you get that title, sergeant, leader, there was always this, well, what is a leader? Can I be a leader? Am I a leader? Will I ever be a leader? Where's the manual for this? And over the, the years, I guess the title comes first and then the desire to become what the title is. But I've learned that it's really not about the title. Leadership is really about caring. It's about humanity. It's about love and it's about nurturing people. But it, back then, you know, it's, it became something that once I started to feel comfortable as a leader, it's something that I thought, well, I need to bring others on this journey. And that's, and that's going to, that's, that's, that's one of my goals is to, is to share best practices and leadership because there's no, you know, if you, if you have a best practice or if you see one and you're not sharing it, well, then what, then what does it mean? So, so I like to think of a, my 11 and a half years in Brooklyn South, the borough commander is, is kind of a, a leadership college. Very proud of. I would actually see these captains and inspectors and inspectors and lieutenants, and, and actually I would see them sitting in my chair and beyond. And that was when it became really, really fun, where you could see yourself not here anymore and others doing whatever they learned, you know, under your, under your guidance. And I became more of a witness. And it's something that I, actually something I put out recently that I came up with years ago. Leadership is a lot like gardening. Provide some nurturing, some support, some water, and most of all, don't step on the flowers. And it, <laughs> I yeah. love it. I mean, I'm I'll let you do. That's profound. And yeah. you know, as you were Thank you. explaining that, it's, I've seen in organizations where I've gone in to speak or consult or just even friends who've been in organizations where there's a hierarchy and a leadership structure, that there are the type of leaders who are not like you, the ones mm. who grow by keeping others down. Did yeah. you ever encounter, uh, we're not going to name names, obviously, but did you ever encounter that? Yeah. Yeah. So how do you deal with that? Well, the short answer is you must be the change you want to see in the world and bring what you believe in and bring your passion and bring what you think is right at every opportunity you, you can. And, and if it was somebody who had a style like that, that was under me, well, then I would, I would work with that person and I would provide air support. And air support is if you have a commanding officer that, that really, you know, it doesn't care much about people. Well, one of the things I did, air support is a military term and I'm not a veteran. The idea is, you know, coming in and helping the troops on the ground. So what it meant for me was visiting the command more, interacting with the command more. And sometimes you can be the model of that it's okay. Because I believe that most cases, it's just a matter of a leader turning on, almost like turning on a light switch and saying, yeah, I care about safety. Yeah, I care about product. But I also care about people. And I care about how we treat people. And when you do that, I've experienced that people who appear to not care about people, they will. Because it's almost like if they're not asked for it, if you're not asking your teams, if you're not putting it out as something that you value, well, they're not going to respond to it. Because if they think you only want to know about numbers, then that's what they're going to give you. So I was very proud that, you know, after in the Transit Bureau a couple of years, I didn't have to call a precinct commander and say, hey, this looks like a really good arrest that this officer made. You think I should give her a call? 
they were contacting me and they were very happy to do it because they cared about their people. And it's all about, it's so much about confidence. These leaders that's, that see leadership as a game to be won or lost, well, that's how they tend to see life as a game to be won or lost. And leaders who, these servant leaders who, who see themselves as there to serve the people they lead, that's how they live, live, live their lives. And, you know, something that we, I recently learned in, in IPEC coaching, who you are now is who you'll be. And if you don't, and you want to be who you want to be and, be and be there now and show up that way now and be that way always, it's, it's kind of like a life passion. It is. And you have taken that passion and really stepped up beyond just the roles that you've had in the NYPD before you retired. And now, of course, you're, you're doing your other work with mm. families of officers who have fallen. Do you want to walk us through a little bit about what you've done there? I'm very touched how much you've followed my life on, on social media because who I am is who you see on social media. And yeah, the, you know, we wear these uniforms because we want to protect our communities. We wear these uniforms because we want to separate the manifestations of evil from, from the manifestations of good. And I say manifestation because we're all born good. We're all born innocent. We're all born to do well. And people get lost along the way. And I'm, and I'm not sure why, but that's where we come in. But we wear, we wear these uniforms and we carry out this mission for, for a number of reasons. Public safety, protection, caring. But we do it to honor those who have died doing it, wearing the same uniform. And that is, I believe that is our core, our heroes that, we, that have given their lives doing what we get to do. And we wear our uniforms for them. And the closest thing, the closest thing to those heroes, those men and women, are their families. And, and I think when I, I made One Star Chief back in 1997, and I was sitting on a dais in, in an award ceremony. And I was sitting next to Judy and John Hansen, whose son, Kenny, died in the line of duty in a, in a harbor. He was drowned in a training exercise in, in Manhattan Harbor. And he, he was a, a harbor police officer. And I saw the tears fall when they sang the song Heroes. And I saw these tears roll down her cheek. And I remember having a conversation with her after. And it, and it occurred to me that, oh my, what comes with this rank that I've been lucky enough to get is access to these families because I see them at events. And, and I just found that to be such an honor that I gravitated towards them. But then in September 11, 2001, a firefighter, Michael Roberts, was killed in the towers. And it occurred to me that I just became one of those families. You know, I, it, it almost, I wondered whether or not my, my passion to be involved with these families better prepared me to become one. Mm. And that's something that, I'll, that I, my connection to them is something I cherish. So one of the greatest tragedies of our time, and now you've mentioned it here, and I, I want to be sure we do cover it, you know, and just honor it in the right way, 9-11. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I was in the safety of Canada and, you know, sitting in an office building at the time that was, you know, it was hard to watch. Being on mm -hmm. the ground now, because you weren't there at the first part, and then you decided to go in. Yes, yes. After. So I think when adversity, and I really want to talk to you just before we get to this, Joe, one of the, the things that I talk a lot about when it comes to the Resiliency Ninja message is that we need to look at our challenges as they are. And we mm -hmm. have stress, which is like a lot of the busy, busy stuff and internally driven. And we're, you know, the stories we tell and we can deal with stress. We have obstacles like you know, the, the bad guy's trying to get away and we can go get them. We have the, you know, we don't have enough sales. We have all these things that can be overcome in our life if we have the right creativity and the right tools. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we have true adversity. And mm. 
that's when we can never go back to the way it was before something happened. And no. so yeah. we'll flip into let's talk adversity. Yeah. I, lo I love that analysis, by the way. Thank you. And I think one of the things that really led me to believing that is, you know, we use this phraseology a lot of bouncing back. Mm -hmm. And I think of someone like you who was there, or New York as a whole, you can't bounce back. There yeah, is no going back. Yeah, it's, it becomes absolutely part of who you are. It's like I would tell the, you know, the cops of a fallen officer, like right, right from day one, I would say, this, this, is, this is very painful scar tissue, and it's, it'll be part of our lives. And, and if we handle this well, we will allow it to better equip us in life, almost, almost like, like a strenuous workout. You, you get something out of it, even though you, get, you go through some pain to get there. So it's, and, and as far as what you had said, said about, you know, made reference to you being up in Canada, the first, the first when I did my, you know, I tried to pump up the cops and I would go, go to all these commands the day after, and then I'm going to get into how I got there that day, if, if you'd like. Yeah. But I would open up, and I would have maybe a hundred cops before me in a roll call, and I would open up and say, "There's a woman. There's a woman in Wyoming, and I don't know why I picked Wyoming, and she's never been to New York. She never will, and she doesn't know anyone here. And she's sitting there crying, watching CNN all day. And then I would bring it to them and say, "You're here. You're at the site. We live here. This is very, very challenging. This is very painful." But then I would tell them how what they're doing is so important and, and the world is watching. And they should be, feel so proud. But that, that day, so, so I guess my point there is there's almost no way to qualify how painful that event was and is for, for people, for, for humanity, really. Uh, and, and especially people close to it. And that's, you know, people in, in, in North America. That day, the hardest thing about that day for me, and I believe for everyone, is the feeling of not being able to help of not being able to do anything. There were stories of you know, all the staff in St. Vincent's Hospital just all waiting for all the injured people to come in, and no one came in, and that ripped their hearts out. So the first daughter I got, I was in my, my daughter Elizabeth's school. She, she, was, she, she was seven years old at the time. It was an open parent-teacher conference, and you watch the kids you know, speak and participate at the beginning of the school year. And the first plane hit, and I wasn't. Some people knew right away it was a terrorist attack. Some, some didn't. I, I didn't think that. And I anxiously waited because I wanted to hear my daughter speak. And then as soon as I heard her raise her hand, I, and then the second plane hit, and then I knew, as everyone knew, that it was an attack. And of course, I, I go to work in uniform. So I you know, ran home, got, got dressed, and I started driving north on Flatbush Avenue. And I'm in my police car. I was at Crown Victoria. And I see these cars, one by one, going through lights, just regular private vehicles. So even in the face of all this happening, your instincts kick in. So I pulled up next to one and hit the siren and looked at them with an expression as if to say, what's going on? And the guy just held up his fire FDNY parking permit. And I realized that these cars that were running lights were firefighters. Oh, God, were, help us. Yeah, Are you kidding? That were off duty and racing. And then we formed a little caravan as the blocks went on. And I was leading. And with my lights and sirens, and it was five or six and then seven and then eight. And we're going down Flatbush Avenue. Now, I had been given a command not to go to Manhattan. And I understood the command because we had to worry about things happening in the outer boroughs. So when we got to the point where they were continuing north on Flatbush Avenue, I turned right on Rogers Avenue to go to my command. I'll never forget watching them proceed, wishing I could go with them. And I don't know who they were, and I don't know how many of them made it. 
but I'll, I'll always be proud of them and I'll always admire them. And then I went to my office and I did what I could. I, first thing I could do is pull televisions out from the inner offices to the general area so people could see it, you know, the staff. I walked person to person and said, call your family, call your family. They said, I did, chief. I said, call them again, call them again. This is big. And then we decided what people to visit and to call people who had, had suffered losses in life. And then about 6.30, there was a, they held a meeting down in headquarters, and I, and I went to it. And it was during that meeting that I, my, my SkyTel page was going off. And I went into an office and called my sister, Veronica, who had been sending messages all day saying she's worried about my nephew, Michael. I just I thought, this is just a nervous mom. You know, my nephew, Michael, worked in, in Brooklyn. He's probably not there. I didn't know anything about fire operations. And at 6.30, as a matter of fact, at one point, about 3, 4 in the afternoon, I remember actually being a little mad at him saying to myself, Michael, why don't you just stop what you're doing and call your mom, for goodness sake. So at about 6.37, I got that call from her that Michael was there. I don't remember. All of a sudden, I was on a phone, and all of a sudden, people started handing me tissues. So I don't remember crying, but I, I must have. And then I drove to my home, and I got family, and I went to my sister's, and, and we decided to go, go to the site. Anita Ryan, who was driving me, and my ex-wife, Eileen, and it was about 10.30, and we, just, we parked our, our cars right by the Brooklyn Bridge and just walked and walked and walked. And that's a lieutenant escorted me through, and I went through the financial center, and it was, it was in ruins. And it was, you could hear water and smoke and the smell. And, and we got to the, where the South Tower was, and, and I looked, and I just I knew. I knew that I was not going to see my nephew again. And I, and I thought then uh, I have to do a really good job at his funeral. And I, and I did, October 26th, two months later. But after that point, the next day, and people were coming over to me, I'm sorry about your nephew, I'm sorry about your nephew, I'm sorry about your nephew. And I realized that other people died. So I asked my, my sergeant to get, get the, you know, poll our 2,600 people, the commands, and see if anybody else lost anybody. And as it turns out, I had a list of 85 people, 85 cops. On, on, it was like five pages. And you would look, it would say member, and it would have the cop's name. Um, person lost, or the person's name, relationship, and it would say cousin, sister, brother, father. And I had a phone number in the last column. So I started calling these cops, and I'd say, I'm sorry for our loss, and, 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 and whenever they'd make a big deal out of the phone call, I'd say, hey, I'm not only the club member, I'm also the president, which was an old Cy Sims uh, balding commercial. <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> and I'd say, I lost my nephew also. So we had this group of 85 people, and, and, and I thought it was, so, so then I had this, this, this model, I know this saying, I would say, everyone's doing what they can, everyone's doing what they can, but we're only doing 60% of what's needed. And I had this Lieutenant Jimmy Wood, no boss, you're doing 110%, no, I said, Jimmy, no, you don't understand, because it's so hard for me to explain this concept to people. I say, no, I am doing all I can, you're doing all you can, the mayor's doing all he can, but it's only 60% of what's needed. And that reminds me of this song by the Eagles, there's a hole in the world tonight. There was a hole in our world. And then he said to me, and then I said, Jimmy, Jimmy, and I pulled out that list out of my pocket. And I said, like these phone calls, everybody's making a big deal out of them, but there's gotta be more I can do. And he said, how about we do a lunch, boss? I said, what do you mean? So we got Danny Rodriguez, who's now the singing cop. We had a, a girls choir from a high school, local high school. We had a catering hall in Bay Ridge. And we had about 200 people, the families of these 85 cops. And I thought like a year later that that was a month later. It was actually September 18th, seven days later. And these people all stayed 
an hour or two after the lunch was served because it was the first time that they that they saw someone else who had suffered a loss. And that became a very special group for me. And, I, and I'm still in touch with them and I have deep connections. And, and then there was the, um, uh, the civilians. You know, the, all, all the attention was going to the firefighters and the, and the cops. And I knew this because my nephew was a firefighter and I was in NYPD. So we got a list of about 300 people in Brooklyn South who lost, lost somebody. And, and that was tricky because we did this telephone bank with community affairs offices up in my office. And you couldn't call and say, hi, this is Officer Jones, because then the person would think you found something. Right. So we'd have to call and say, hi, this is Tommy. Uh, I'm sorry about the loss of your husband. I'm sorry about the loss of your son. By the way, I'm with NYPD, Brooklyn South. We work with Chief Fox, and he also lost his nephew. And that, we did uh, holiday events in December. We did holiday event events in April. I sent out a letter in the anniversary. And many people didn't respond. Uh, I mean, many, most did not, but some did. Like we, at the parties, we get about 150 people. And I wondered, should I stop doing this? And then about a year and a half later, I got a letter from a woman who hadn't come to one event, never responded to one phone call, not one letter. And she just called me up. She wrote me a letter. And in the letter talked about the place that me and these cops had and her getting through losing her son, Belayla. Her name was Hyacinth Blackman. And, and I connected with her. And, and we are like family friends today, as I am with a number of those people. But it's, it's a gift that came from that pain. And when I'm thinking as I'm speaking about, re, I'm thinking about resiliency, for me personally, it was, it, was, it was a dark time. And I thought if I could harness some light, that's how I survived. That's, how, that's what made this okay for me. That's what, that's what made, and when I say okay, I felt like I was doing something. Two days after this happened, I remember being in my basement because I used to keep my clothes in a separate place, sometimes out in the rear stoop because we didn't know what was on them. And I remember down in the basement, I just looked like off and I, and I said, there's going to be an incredible opportunity to do good through this. And I didn't know what it looked like or what it meant. And about four years ago, it was Father's Day and Hyacinth Blackman called me for Father's Day and who lost her son, Belewa. And I remember thinking right then, it was like a light went off and I thought, wow. This is the good that I saw. This is the, you know, the, the ability to, to help others and, and that I saw. And it was a very special feeling. It, it, it came over me. And, and it, was, it was, frankly, it was, I, I, I needed to do it. I needed, I needed to do it because there was such helplessness in the world. It, just, it, was, it was really how, and, and I'm, if I can just go back a little, when we talked about the line of duty families, in coaching, we, we, we work with uh, energy, energy leadership. Uh, in the index. And basically, it's seven levels of energy that, that the founder of IPEC, uh, Bruce, came up with. And level one is when you're totally defeated, apathetic, I can't do anything. This always happens to me. Level two, and they're both catabolic, by the way. Level two is, I ain't taking this anymore. I'm tired of this. This, is, has to, this has to. And that's a little better than one, but it's still catabolic. But then you go up to three and four and five and six and seven, where progressively, Seven is up there where there's this interconnectedness. There's no one to win or lose in life. We're all here for one purpose. We're all connected. There's no judgment. But the idea is we weave in and out of these. But it just occurred to me doing one of these coaching sessions is that they call it, they call it a slingshot, where you can actually pull yourself from one level to another. And I think with the desperation of a cop killed, I think what me thinking, okay, what what can my relationship be with this family from the night in the hospital? I think that was 
of course, it was loving. Of course, I'd like to think of it as good, but it was also self-protective because it took me out of level one. It took me out of defeat. It took me out of apathy. It took me out of being a victim. And it took me to some place where I felt like I could do, do good. And I think that's what, and I think that's what worked for me subconsciously after, after 9-11. So and, is there's, it, and there's one other, yeah, go ahead. Go on. Well, I'm just thinking because it actually gave you a sense of purpose. And maybe took your eyes off the incredible pain you were feeling and it filled that hole rather than going into the victim yeah. trap. It filled it with, I've got to move. I've got to do. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, in seven habits, we call it, we call being proactive, the habit of choice. Mm-hmm. And that's what it is. It's choice. And it's, and it's, and it's, and it, I think now I'm conscious of these choices especially with the work I've done on myself and, the, and, and, and through my coaching and, and just my own life. But at the, at the interesting thing, it, at the time, I didn't realize that. It wasn't like I went to a toolbox and said, okay, which, which energy level do I want to take now? I'm looking back now realizing that I, I believe that's what I did. That's what I did. I, cho- I, chose, I chose to be a part of the solution rather than to be, to be um, something that something happened to or to be a victim. Yeah. And uh, like, thank goodness innately. And also being in a leadership role, I suspect you set this sample for others who, the example, so that others were going into that as well. I would think that in the police force, like, and this may be very stereotypical, it feels like the training would keep you from being vulnerable. Like, I don't think back yeah. in the 90s, say, that there was a culture of vulnerability and let's all cry together and let's be. And I, I feel like it shifted right. after 9-11 where it became okay yeah. human. Yeah, you know, as, as so did our culture and so did, so did our, our lives. But there's still, you know, people who are in these, these positions where they see, see tough things, they still protect themselves. They protect themselves by not feeling. And, and I, it, just occurred, it just occurred to me about two, two three years ago, um, you know, I sit in, I used to sit in the police commissioner's office and do the crime briefings in the morning and chief of detectives would put up a video of somebody being shot or somebody running away after committing a rape. And, and, and I would, you know, I, this, I've lived with this my, most of my life. And just in the last two years, it started to bother me. And I'm not ashamed to say it. it started, I didn't like looking at them. I would sit there and I'd say, what, you know, what is this? Why, why would this 16-year-old boy, what got, what got him to the point where he thought it was okay to shoot somebody? And, and I found it pa- painful. Of course, I, I, I dealt with it. And then it got to the point where even reading an email of somebody's phone snatched on a subway, um, it, it, the, 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 the groping, the sexual assaults, it, it, I started to feel. And, I, and I, part of me wanted to go out and teach all the rookie cops, feel, feel, don't hide your feelings. It's good to be in touch with your feelings. And then I realized, no, because that's how I needed to get to this point. And maybe I'm, maybe I'm just getting to that point through my own self-actualization and doing this so long and my own aging that I'm allowing myself to feel. My own strength, maybe the work I've done, maybe I'm, maybe I'm okay with feeling now. But when people are not okay with feeling, I guess, I guess whatever that mechanism is neurologically helps us and protects us. And it, well, it definitely is a protection mechanism to to do that and i believe true healing after adversity comes from our embracing the feelings yes that's yes. how because until you do that like i know even for me when the the first adversity that i went through in the beginning of my decade of hell which is a lot of what the resiliency ninja message is built around yeah. was losing my dad who i was so 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 close to 
And although that's a very normal life occurrence, I didn't have the tools and I was so afraid, like you're saying here, Joe, I was so afraid to feel the hurt and the depth of loss that I just got really busy and focused on external things and I wasn't serving my healing. And so I guess there, there is a, I think there's a balance because you couldn't have Mm -hmm. a whole bunch of police officers, you know, running around the streets and, you know, responding in a, an emotional vulnerable way every time they ran into a criminal because they have to bury that in order to deal with the facts at hand. Yeah. Yeah. And yet when they leave, they've got to be able to have that emotion. Exactly. And, and, and because it comes out sideways. Yeah. And to not, and like I would tell, I would tell the officers in all my, all my training sessions, especially my orientations after they um, graduate, you know, people say, keep, don't bring the job home with you. I, I don't agree with that. I, I, I don't, I, and what I, to the extent I don't agree with it, if you see something that bothers you, oh my, you should be able to share that with the loved one. If, if the loved one can handle it. I'm not saying to go home and tell your six-year-old daughter about some, you know, somebody, something horrible you saw. But if there's somebody in your life that you, that you lean on for support, well, I mean, you know, when you go to a doctor, you tell them everything that's going on, don't you? So why wouldn't we share what's going on in our lives with people who, who love us most? And I, and I think that's the health, healthy balance. And maybe, maybe you're not going to start crying at the scene of a, of a crime, but it's okay to shed a few tears at home. It's, I mean, I, I, interestingly, uh, October 31st of last year, when that terrorist killed the eight people in the, on the West Side Highway, he got that rent, that, that rent a truck from Home Depot. Yes, he just I ran remember. Up. I was there that day, and I went. I, I actually traveled lights and sirens and bumper to bumper traffic to get there. The traffic was was a horror in the city. Everything was shut down. I was up on up in the Bronx. It took me about an hour to get there. I knew the scene was stabilized. I knew he was in custody. I knew there were no more injuries. I knew it was all over. But yet I had to be there. And then I stood there for about 45 minutes. I looked at the bodies. I looked at the crime scene. I had very few conversations because it was just a horrible scene. It wasn't something that people chatted, chatted at. And I went about my day and I went home and I live on, and I live on, the, on, on, the, on the beach. I'm lucky enough to have found an apartment. And I went and stood in my terrace and I looked out at the moon and I looked out at Jupiter and I just looked at this beauty and I sat down and I actually said to myself, I need to read a poem that I wrote two days after Hurricane Sandy, and it's titled Perfect Order. And it was coming home the second night of that carnage, carnage after in the Rockways. It was 12 o'clock at night, and I looked up, and I saw the same sight, Jupiter and the moon and this beauty. And I just wrote into my phone, standing in Flatbush and everywhere, about how this perfect, this perfect relationship, the solar system, everyone knows where they're supposed to be. It's perfect harmony, and yet there's such pain here. And I, and I wrote about that, and I thought about that that night, looking, and then I thought, why did I need to be there? And I started to think of the humanity of the people and the fear that they were feeling. I thought of the driver of this truck. I thought of his humanity. I wondered what it was like for him to, to hear the bodies bouncing off the, the, the vehicle and whether he saw any faces and what got him to this point. And, and then I thought, why did I need to be there? And then I got very sad and I, and I started to cry. And I, and I realized that I didn't allow myself to feel this there or all, all day until 1030 at night on my, on my terrace. And then I realized why I was there. I wanted to be part of something that was right. I wanted to be part of the light because those men and women in uniform on the West Side Highway were what was right in, in spite of this manifestation of evil and what was wrong. 
and and that's and that's and that was very profound for me because that's what I that's where I needed to be. But that I got into this because that that one I guess fifteen hour period. Yeah, I didn't. I did not access those feelings when I was there. I didn't know why I was there when I was there. It was somewhat routine, and I didn't access it throughout the day. And I probably did other things during the day. And it wasn't until I was safe on my balcony on my terrace with the ocean and the moon and the, and and Venus or, or Jupiter. Venus is actually behind my building. <laughs> that I that I realized that I accessed my feelings and realized why I was there. So it's a combination of this stuff being protective for us, but we have to be able to access our feelings. I agree. And by the way, which and I'm sorry for that ten years you had and and your law, our losses. I think you had multiple losses within six months or a year, right? Yeah, I did. I had um, lots of people in my life died in that very short period of time, and then others throughout the decade of hell. But I, I think one of the things that I'm really committed to is that we never go down the comparison road, right? It's, yeah. We all have our yeah. own it, physical, yeah. emotional, spiritual, and our reference point is our reference point of what yes. those hard things are and having the, the challenges. And, and when we look at the stress, the obstacles, the adversity, I see in your story, you've had several stories of adversity. The thing I'm not hearing from you though, throughout it all is the stress. It's almost like you looked at everything as an obstacle right? Like you're very, like you look at this, you, there's the adversity piece and that's the healing. And so we'll separate that out of the, the thing. But I don't get the sense from you, Joe, that you went to work every day and felt like overwhelmed or, uh, you know, like, oh my gosh, everything's like, there's just so much going on because you're dealing with that all the time. And I think a lot of our listeners are maybe not in high stress environments, but they're living high stress lives. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's, that's interesting because I, I retired in January and I like, you know, I, people may have loved this job as much as me, but no one loved it more. And yet I haven't had a day where I've looked back. I haven't had a day where I missed, I literally have not missed it. And part of the reason, and I often joke and say that I think people in, on the job are worried and they're putting cops along my travel route because I'm seeing more cops than I did when I was working. It's, it's actually quite adorable. It's, <laughs> it's really like amazing. It's a party now, right? You're attracting it into your life. I mean, it, there's something I put, I, 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 I put on Facebook a couple of days ago. I mean, there's a sergeant and a, and a cop that happened to be in a run in the next door to me. We went up on the boardwalk and took, here we are in the ocean when I come home from a day of work taking, taking pictures. But, and one of them, the sergeant was somebody who was a cop three years ago, and I got to call him and thank him for arresting somebody for jumping a turnstile who had a loaded gun on him. But, but as far as the stress, now here's, here I'm going to let my hair down, the hair I don't have a little bit. If you People haven't seen say, a picture of uh, Joe yet, please look at the show notes. Yes, yes, <laughs> I, I, comb, yeah, I, comb, I comb my hair with a towel. <laughs> <laughs> so people would say the stress in your job, the stress, and I would say, this is not stress. I live for this. I thrive on this. So I go to see my cardiologist last week. And, it, and he's, he's an amazing man and a dear friend, and he's so thorough. The first 20 minutes of the visit, he's looking at his notes on a computer, and he has my children's names, my girlfriend's names, her, her, her name, her kid's name, my diet. What I, as I'm telling him I eat strawberries and blueberries every morning, he says, oh, you used to do that twice a week. Now you do it. I mean, he knows everything. So he turns to me and says, uh, how about the tremors? So now back up about two years ago, I went to a neurologist because every now and then I noticed my hands would shake. And of course I wanted to know what that was because sometimes it was more than others and it was something that I've noticed off and on for, for many years. 
And, and she gave me a diagnosis. I forget what she called it. She said that, that no one knows what it's attributed to. Stress th- does, uh, uh, you know, exacerbate it. And, but that didn't affect me because I don't have stress. So he said, he asked me this question and I stopped and said, Oh my gosh, they've stopped. <laughs> and he says, hold out your hand. I put out my hand. So then I called my girlfriend, Marcella. I says, Marcella, I just walked out of the office. And she says, I know, I noticed that. I didn't want to say anything. So, and I'm looking and every, every almost since last week, every now and then I'm looking at my hands like, holy cow, I had so much more stress than I realized. And you, and if you, and if you would have asked me if I had a stressful job, then I would have said, no, 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 I love this stuff. It was like the physical manifestation of not acknowledging the level of pressure that you were under perhaps. Exactly. And that is such an important point to make because, and that, that's put brilliantly because the, the takeaway for those who are able to, to hear this uh, is that we, it's, 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 we're better off dealing with our feelings in a, safe, in a safe way, whether it's with professional help or in our own terms. Because the more we hide them, they, they come, like I said before, they come out sideways. And that's one of the ways mine came out. I love that, the sideways. I, I've never actually heard that phraseology, and I, I might mm. quote you on it a few times. Please do. It's like you get hijacked. Like I remember when like my mom is in the hospital, for example, and I, now I can deal with it. But I'd be so afraid of losing her because of her heart or or whatever. I'd be and I'd be rude to like some, you know, uh, like the parking lot attendant guy or whatever. Yeah. I'd be like, what do you mean the machine doesn't work? Like, come on! And that's so not my personality. And yeah. I think that that's the phraseology. I wasn't dealing with the thing at hand. I was having it come out sideways. Yeah. All right. Like, well, actually, I I got that from a friend of mine, Nancy Carbone. So. There's very few original ideas here, Allison. They're all stolen. I know. Stolen. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> but it's always people's different perspective, right? They're going to hear this. Mm-hmm. And I think if people are going through difficult times, it's they can they can see like we're both at a state in our life where where we're through the worst of it, we hope, or or at least as the worst comes, we have tools now that we've helped develop over the years to deal with it in a more mm-hmm. streamlined way. And that's my hope for the listeners. I I think so often we see the leadership in the world, the uh, people who look like they have it all together, that they've got the happy families smiling and behind the scenes, yeah. we're all going through something. Yes. Yes. We, 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 we certainly, certainly are. And that's, that's a, that's a great takeaway. And on, and what you just said about, Oh, I hope the pain is behind me about two years ago, my therapist said, so Joe, you seem so happy on a one to 10. What would you say? And I said, Jackie, uh, on maybe 13 on a bad day. <laughs> and and she, she smiled. And it, it sounded like shtick, but I meant it. And, and I thought about it. And in the next couple of sessions, I said, so I've been thinking about that happiness question. And what does that mean? Does that mean I have bad times coming? And she looked at me and said, Joe, you had your bad times. <laughs> Right, and and there's a number of other things that that, I, that I've experienced in my life that were tough, and and I thought and I thought you're right. Yep, and you hope that the bad times are behind you, but if you can still go through the bad times with that perspective then you can get through it even faster. So listen, Joe, I know we're, we're out of time for the show, but I've loved having you as a guest. And to those of you who are listening, please 
I, if you would like to be sure you never miss an episode, I would love for you to subscribe to the Resiliency Ninja podcast, leave a review, uh, say hello to Joe and I, let us know what you got out of this, what your takeaways were. And, you know, until the next time, I know you're going to face obstacles, but I encourage you to embrace your inner resiliency ninja. Facha, you can throw out the facha word. And Joe, hey, thanks so much for being here and sharing such great advice for everyone. Thanks very much. Thank you so much. This was a very, very helpful process, and I really appreciate it, Allison. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to Resiliency Ninja with Allison Graham. We are thrilled to have you as part of our community. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and recommend it on iTunes, Overcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always connect with Allison at r-ninja.com and find important links to show notes. Thanks for listening. Until next time, embrace whatever obstacles come your way. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.